This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Barb Archer. And today for Charles Feldman. Well, good luck if you're planning to take a flight anywhere soon, especially on certain carriers. JetBlue, Spirit, and Southwest all canceled hundreds of flights over the weekend. They blamed bad weather, staffing issues, and technology problems. We'll go in-depth on whether this is just temporary or something that's going to make your summer vacation travel plans a big pain. Also, Russia is shifting its focus in Ukraine more toward the east. This is uh, also as a new general is taking over with a nasty reputation. We're traveling to Ukraine again to talk to a teacher who is in a Russian-occupied city. She will share her story on trying to get by and how she's still teaching her students. Doctors and scientists working on plans to reformulate the COVID vaccines. The goal is one for the multiple variants, so we'll take a look at that. Law enforcement agencies have been sounding the alarm about ghost guns for a while. The president's announcing some new rules meant to help police better find criminals. And when it comes to feeding your dog, you might not think too much about hygiene, but a new study shows you can get sick if you don't clean the bowl right. We're going to start with airline disruptions. Brett Snyder is the author of the Cranky Flyer blog and director of the Cranky Concierge Air Travel Service. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, over the pandemic, we heard the phrase new normal so many times that we kind of get sick of it. But but the fear here is that these travel problems, is this a new normal? And I hope not. (laughs) This is... (laughs) You know, this is just what I would consider more growing pains of getting back toward normal. Um, But, you know, this is not a place that the airlines can afford to be uh, forever here. Uh, And, you know, we'll see. We'll see how long it takes. So what was this weekend? What has it been as of late? Because we were in the place where they didn't have enough people yet. And then we get them in situations where sometimes the crews aren't where they need to be and there's not enough backups and we don't have as many flights as we used to. Was it that? Was it that plus weather? I mean, what were we dealing with that have made things so bad over the last few days? So the, the flights have come back much more than where they were previously. Obviously, demand is very strong, especially domestically. So the airlines want to fly as much as they possibly can. Uh, now what the issues are, first, there there is a weather issue, but there's always a weather issue, right? You have uh, storms in Florida all the time. You have, you know, uh, tornadoes in the Midwest, whatever it may be, there, there's always something going on. The big difference right now is that you have the airlines operating with much less slack than they used to. Um, there is still this issue of not having enough employees. Uh, pilots are are one of the big issues. And the reason for that is that to become a pilot, you have to train and have a, a lot of hours, uh, 1,500 hours of flying before you're even allowed to fly uh, for a commercial airline. And so it's not as easy as just saying, hey, we're going to pay more. Um, you have to replenish the pipeline, and, and that's tough. But then you also have staffing issues at other levels, too, as I think businesses all over have seen. I mean, you've probably seen it at restaurants in your neighborhood that you go in and, um, you know, it's it's tough getting people hired right now. Uh, So all that coming together means that when the normal weather type of thing hits, there's just less ability to recover. How much of a factor was it uh, during the height of the pandemic when, you know, a lot of flights got uh, cut, people just weren't going anywhere, and the airlines had to lay off a lot of employees, including a lot of pilots? How much of a factor was it, you know, when, when oh, the flights are picking back up again, you can't just reactivate a pilot. They have to go through recertification again. Is, is, is that true? Is that what happens? 
Yeah. So there are a couple of things here. First of all, the airlines didn't really lay people off because they got all that government money that we all paid for uh, through taxes. Um, and so instead what they did is they had voluntary buyouts and retirement plans and things like that. So they did lose a lot of employees uh, because employees just opted out and said, we're done. Uh, so when that happens, another thing that they did is they retired different fleets of aircraft that they have. And when you're a pilot, you are only current on one type of aircraft at that time. And you have to go back to training if you want to change aircraft. So when, for example, Delta retired its 777s, all those 777 pilots had to go be trained for a new airplane. And then that bumps some of the people off that were on that other airplane into a different airplane. And so you create all these different training events. Uh, and there are only so many simulators that the airlines have. So that is actually a, a really big issue on the pilot side is getting enough training time and getting everyone through that pipeline. And it's still happening. JetBlue's gotten a bad rap as of late. So let's say I've got a flight Friday, LAX, uh, JetBlue. Should I be nervous about that? Or can we spin the wheel and it's American or Delta United next, next weekend? <laughs> well, to some extent, you can spin the wheel because it's sometimes just going to be a matter of where does the weather hit, right? Whoever has their big hub in some place, that's what it's going to be. Uh, but JetBlue has not had a good operation for a long time. They're consistently toward the bottom of the on-time performance rankings. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's not really a huge surprise when you see JetBlue having issues. They don't usually have them to the same extent that they did this time around. But, um, you know, it, it's fairly normal for them. It would be much stranger if you saw uh, Alaska and Delta. Those are airlines that generally have really good operations. Uh, but, you know, Alaska is an airline that they had a pilot shortage and they had to cancel a few dozen flights um, last week. And so it can happen to anyone. That's the thing. Brett Snyder, the Cranky Flyer blog and director of the Cranky Concierge Air Travel Service. The news from Ukraine. Russia's new war commander has a reputation for brutality against civilians. Uh, Russia, again, controlling portions of Ukraine, mainly in the east and south, close to the Black Sea, and uh, trying to make some moves to maybe secure those areas even more. We were going to talk with uh, Marina, a teacher in Kursan, lives with her family and teenage son, and has been trying to adjust and teach virtually and still keep all the students together. Uh, we're not able to get through to her right now. She had uh, warned us that maybe the phone lines were going to be a bit dicey. Uh, we've been able to speak before, but it looks like we can't get through right now. Um, and Charles and I have talked other times on the show, Rob, how fascinating and amazing it is, frankly, that we can get through to all these people as often as we do and have these conversations uh, in the middle of a war. Uh, right now, we do have a journalist, Phil Itner, with us uh, in Lviv, Ukraine. Uh, Phil, thank you for, for hopping onto the phone. Give us kind of the the outlook from there as, as we get all these different little news items, uh, this new Russian general and what Russia's plans may be to try and uh, obviously scale back, regroup, and then go after portions of this country. So as the analysis goes, Vladimir Putin can at least say that he got some sort of win here. Yeah, uh, Mike and Rob, thank you for uh, giving a call. And of course, uh, I'm not terribly surprised that Maria wasn't able to get through in Kherson. Kherson is a disputed city. It's, it's, it's really tricky. And um, actually, as I was just preparing to uh, speak to you, we had another air raid siren here in Lviv um, just seconds ago. Um, so this is also still uh, uh, constantly reminded, uh, we are constantly reminded that we are still within a war zone here. 
as far as the bigger picture, uh, yes, we have a new general uh, in charge of Russian forces, a, a, a general by the name of Dvornik. Uh, he is uh, widely uh, known as the Butcher of Aleppo. Uh, he was in charge of uh, Russian forces there uh, and some of the tactics that were used there. Uh, we are, of course, seeing now here in Ukraine, and that includes, you know, flattening entire city blocks and uh, doing uh, uh, false flag operations and then blaming it on uh, on people who try to, to, to help out or, or what have you. Um, and then uh, uh, he, uh, he has been tasked with uh, uh, taking Donetsk and Luhansk and then pushing down uh, to that much, uh, you know, talked about land bridge that would connect to Crimea, uh, that being one of the primary strategic goals of this entire operation, this entire war. That's what Vladimir Putin uh, put at the top of his wish list when he started this whole thing. He also wanted the capital and decapitating the government of any kind of reformers, but that doesn't seem like that is now viable. But we do expect that the battle for the East is about to ramp up. Uh, we expect uh, that it will be intense. Uh, it will not be static lines as have been in Lugansk and Donetsk for the last eight years. It is expected this will be far more mobile and probably much more violent. And uh, sad to say, many here are expecting uh, an awful lot of casualties. Are you still seeing a flow of uh, Ukrainians coming through your area uh, trying to get out? And, and if you are, what is their feeling? Are, are, they, are they hopeless and uh, just trying to get out? Or are they, do they have some hope that, you know, we're leaving now, but we are coming back when Ukraine wins? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, had a, we had, when the Battle of Kiev was going on, we had a, a, a drop in the refugees and the internally displaced people coming through here. Um, m many of them going onward to other locations outside of Ukraine, but many of them actually staying here. Um, since the threat and the, the realignment of Russian forces uh, and the threat now to the east of the country, we are seeing a massive influx of people coming from that part of the country back, uh, flowing through Lviv in, in refugee trains and uh, uh, as weaponry is going east, people are going west because they know that this battle is going to be harsh. Uh, as to their attitude and their, their perspective, um, uh, most of the people that I talk to uh, are determined that they will return to Ukraine. Um, there is still a very strong sense of solidarity and, and actually optimism. Um, they know that this, this, this is going to be painful. They're very well aware of it. They know what war is like. This, this, this stretch of land in Europe is blood-soaked and has been for centuries. They know what this means. They're not under any illusions. But they finally think that for the first time in their history, they're going to actually be a nation. Uh, and that's why when they talk about Ukrainian nationalists, um, we should really think that uh, they're actually talking about a nation state as opposed to what we instantly kind of refer to in nationalism as kind of this ugly version of, of patriotism. Uh, but when Ukrainian nationalists talk they, and call themselves nationalists, they literally mean a nation. So as far as the refugee situation and the uh, displaced people, the, the internally displaced people, they are still of the mind that this country will ultimately win. 
there, the optimism is still there, uh, and they do expect to return. Um, the, the hopes for this country, once this trauma is over, there's still an awful lot of optimism about the, the potential of this country. It's huge. It has industry. It has um, uh, fertile land for growing grain. Uh, it has a very well-educated uh, country uh, you know, uh, population. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the belief here is that this country is going to be an absolute dynamo once uh, once this war is over. But, of course, they have to go through this war, and uh, they, they hope that they will win in the East. Um, but that is far from an assured thing. What is an assured thing is that ultimately, at some stage and in some form, this will be a country, and it will be a powerhouse. Phil Itner there, a journalist in Lviv, Ukraine. Phil, thank you. We'll let you go since we uh, surprised you with this call. We do have uh, Kirill on with us, though, from Kiev. We spoke to him last week and also to his friend who went to Bucha and uh, brought back those photos, uh, which uh, we had uh, here at knxnews.com. You can still see those. There's some incredible photo uh, journalism from him. Uh, Kirill, based on what, what Phil was just saying, I'd like to pick it up there. There is a fight ahead, uh, even more, for your country over the East as Russia kind of regroups. But... Phil was just talking about the optimism and the hopes that, that yes, you guys are going to get through this and uh, you might finally win and, and finally get the Russians out of your country. What do you think when you think about what the next however many weeks or months could be like? Oh, hi. Uh, I think uh, I think next months or weeks, uh, but I still think months uh, will be the most important because uh, yeah they're gonna be fight at the east and uh, I think it will be a crucial fight but yeah I believe uh, that uh, our uh, our forces will win eventually because the moral of Russians. Uh, is very low and the moral of our people our military is uh, very high still we we are not exhausted um, morally uh, they are uh, if you listen some of the conversation uh, between the russian soldier with their uh, relatives like wives uh, or mothers uh, they just exhausted. They have a really, really low moral. They don't understand why they uh, was brought to this war. So yeah, I believe um, Ukraine will win uh, eventually. Uh, but uh, yeah, Russia, um, Ru- Russian militaries and uh, Russian forces uh, bring in new and new horrible stuff like. Uh, I don't know if you heard this, but uh, maybe our uh, goal, uh, there have been uh, a message from uh, our forces from Mariupol, from Azov, and they uh, uh, they say that Russian uh, attacking the city with uh, chemic, uh, chemical weapons. So... Uh, I don't know what Russia bring next, but uh, chemical weapons is just uh, something uh, that it's it's horrible. And there is uh, not only uh, our forces in town; there is still uh, a lot of uh, people. 
You know, I, I can hear the resolve in your voice, and that's the feeling that we have get with, with all the people that we've talked to, is there is a resolve to stay and fight and win in Ukraine. And then the conversation turns to what does winning look like to you there as a Ukrainian on the ground? Uh, Russians already control some portions in the south and east. There's uh, Crimea, and uh, President Zelensky in his interview uh, last night said that uh, we are not prepared to negotiate on whether Russia can have Crimea. So how does that feel to you, winning in Ukraine? Does that mean all Russians out of Ukraine and all of your territory in your hands? Or do you feel like yourself, maybe, and some other people around you are willing to like, well, they can have this part if they leave the rest of us alone? How do you feel? I don't think we... uh not uh, already we're not in that point that Russia can have anything from Ukraine because uh, uh, this is uh, an opponent uh, uh, that you can give uh, you can give something you we can give Crimea to them uh, we can give uh, Donbass areas to them we can d- give any piece of our land uh, and uh, there, uh, there will be no victory if we do this, because Russia are always come back. And uh, if we gave something, they just come back eventually. Two years, three years, ten years, they always come back. So, yeah, the uh, victory, or uh, I believe only in victory on our terms. And I believe uh, in the victory when Russia goes out from our territory in including Crimea, including parts of Donbass that they occupied. So uh, for me, yes, it, the process uh, of this can be long. I, I understand that uh, this war can have some rounds, and yeah, we can have rounds. Uh, first round, uh, and uh, maybe in two years, second round, and maybe third, and so it, it can be very painful and long war. But eventually, I believe that victory uh, will be ours. And uh, yeah, uh, th- that victory uh, means that we have Crimea back. That's Kirill there from Kiev. Uh, we've spoken to him a number of times now. Uh, Kirill, thank you, and uh, we're glad that, that you are still safe and that we can still speak, and we hope to do so again uh, as we uh, move forward with this. He was mentioning um, reports of, of chemical weapon use. There's a regiment, and this is all the, the talk on Twitter, uh, in Azov that says that um, something was dropped from a drone and it affected their lungs, and they had breathing difficulties, uh, no independent confirmation, and no journalists around to, to confirm any of that. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer, in for Charles Feldman. Russia making some big changes in the uh, war in Ukraine. The new war commander to take control of the operations. Uh, General is one of the country's most experienced military officers. A record of brutality against civilians in Syria. This comes as Russia is shifting its focus uh, there to the east and to the south. With us now is John Spencer, retired U.S. Army major, chair of urban warfare studies at the Madison Policy Forum, an author of the upcoming book, Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership, and Social Connections in the Modern War. Thank you so much for joining us. So uh, this uh, guy's reputation as, uh, as being brutal, as being ruthless, uh, as, as a butcher, 
so, uh, but he's also said to be very experienced. Is is there a concern that uh, you know this new Russian general is going to kind of whip the Russian military into shape, at least in the east and south, and and start accomplishing some things that Putin once accomplished in Ukraine? Yeah, absolutely. So he's known as the butcher of Syria. So we can clearly expect him to get even worse. But he, he, of course, can only whip, you know, these Russian soldiers into. There's only so much that leadership can do. These, these Russian soldiers are demoralized, broken apart, high casualties. Um, it is concerning. He has experience in the in the Donbass. He was a commander there before. He he's potentially their their golden boy. So um, it's interesting, but not. I don't think major. There's only so much he can do. How much do you think they're going to try to do? And there's some reporting that there's a little bit of a timeline here. There's a, a victory day um, in Russia that is about a month away or something, and Putin wants that to be some sort of big celebration. Yeah, so there's mixed um, views on whether May 9th, you know, basically them celebrating the victory over the the, the Germans in World War II. Um, I think he's pushing, he needs a win fast, not just because of that victory day, but because He's losing control, and it costs a lot to have this many soldiers deployed in, in war. Um, but he's also suffered a major defeat. He, he has to win. So I think he is pushing them harder than he ever has in the past, brought in a new commander, um, holding them to high standards. He's doing crazy things to recruit troops. I mean, everything from bringing in 65-year-old men into, as conscripts and bringing in you know, mercenaries, just, just desperate acts trying to get a win quickly. Uh, what happened to the Russian military? There was a feeling uh, when all this started that the Russian military was uh, greatly to be feared, that uh, they would accomplish their goal of decapitating Ukraine and basically overrunning the country within a matter of a week or two at most. Uh, Kiev was going to fall in three days. And then here we are bogged down. We've got uh, reports that some Russian soldiers are, as you say, demoralized. Uh, they don't understand why they're there. They don't like being there. Some of them are cutting and running. And then on the other hand, we've got uh, word that uh, some soldiers are committing atrocities, deliberately targeting civilians, or stories of, uh, of rapes on the ground and the killing of children. So what happened to the Russian military, and how did the West get our assessment of their military so wrong? Yeah, I mean, there's no certainties in war, and we, I think we all thought Russia was this big, bad military based on what they had done up to this point to modernize their military, the the numbers, um, the advancements in artillery and robotics, experiences from Syria, but where it got wrong, and, and I, I think that we all got it wrong as in the world, was underestimating the power of the will to fight in Ukraine. So the military, of course, has been highly trained. The U.S. has been advising them for, for a long time, um, prior to 2014, on how to improve the, the Ukrainian military, but there was a, a numbers problem. But there was also a capabilities problem, and all those weapons, every one of them helped. But we, I think Russia and, and the world underestimated the will to fight, which is huge in war. You can't just look at the numbers. Um, and, and, and clearly, like you just said, the, the Russians didn't have that. And as an old soldier myself, I know how important that is. I mean, we have our own history of just a small, literally just a few men, highly motivated and dedicated to the cause and fighting for each other, um, believing in the in in the right the cause they're doing from the civil war chamberlain um you name it there's so many examples and, and i think we underestimated not only the ukrainian military but the territorial defenses and the civilians actually taking up arms 
Um, in general, plus, I mean, the Russians got taught a lesson that the defense is always harder. So the the Russians really made more mistakes, clearly, but they also gave the Ukrainians time to defend their cities. And once you defend a city, I mean, that's that goes back centuries. I and mean, there's this old Chinese guy who said, the worst strategy you could ever do in war is attack a besieged city. That was true in 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. John Spencer, retired U.S. Army major, and the upcoming book, Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership, Social Connections in Modern War. Scientists are working on tweaking the COVID vaccine formulas to try to give us all some better protection against these variants that keep coming up. The FDA is hoping to decide in May or June on what the future vaccine will look like. Doctors on the FDA advisory panel agreeing the new vaccine needs to target multiple strains. So what could this look like come next fall or winter? With us is epidemiologist uh, Brian Labus, professor in UNLV's School of Public Health. Thanks for being back with us. So, yeah, take us through some of the um, concepts that we could have here. There is the kind of like uh, the flu shot plus COVID or the flu shot idea, whereas you kind of guess at, at what could be coming our way. And then I guess what there's also work on the the more universal vaccine, right? That's the ultimate goal. Find something where you don't have to worry about the variant. You've just uh, got something against uh, COVID itself. Right. There's a lot of options right now, and it comes down to the science of it and the practical side as well. On the practical side, people are used to getting flu shots every year. And so if we time something where people are getting annual COVID shots or we can put it in a single syringe so you just get one shot, that's obviously the ideal situation. On the scientific side, it comes down to... uh, changing our current plan, which is basically we created a vaccine a couple of years ago, and we're still using that vaccine even as the virus has changed. So we're looking at what we can do to make it a either a universal vaccine or deal with the variants as they pop up and have a much better match than we see between the variants and that initial vaccine strain. And this is not really pie in the sky stuff, because some of the vaccines that we did create for COVID were based on maybe a different way of doing, you know, vaccine technology, as opposed to the way we had done vaccines in the past. And uh, doesn't this lay the groundwork for maybe being able to come up with a universal COVID vaccine that will tackle COVID no matter what kind of variants come up, unless it unless it completely changes? Well, that's entirely possible, and that's what we want to do, but we've also been trying to do that with flu for half a century and haven't been able to. It is a challenge to find a part of the virus that doesn't change, that we can basically mount that immune response to all the time and use that as our vaccine. The The challenge with mutations is they happen in a virus, and so that virus does change over time. We do have to pick something, though, in that virus that doesn't change, and we're still trying to learn what those things are. If they're going to try and do something in the fall, what do you think that is going to be? Most people are assuming it's going to be an Omicron shot. Does that get us closer to what uh, could be after Omicron? Or can you bundle like a Delta and Omicron together? And does that give you any benefit? But Delta's gone. So why would that be in there? Well, we can look at different proteins. It doesn't necessarily have to be just Delta or Omicron. We are creating the messenger RNA that that builds the protein we're interested in. So we can pick it from a number of the mutations we've seen around the world and say, this is our kind of general one we're going to use for Omicron, Delta, whatever those mutations are. I think we're talking about something that's just a few months away, and it takes a few months to produce the vaccine and get it to the public. And so that's going to be one of the delays. Even if we can pick the perfect thing today, it's not like we're going to have something we can put in people's arms tomorrow. So it's it's really kind of a shift in our thinking about it. We also have to think about, is every manufacturer going to be doing the same thing? With the flu shot, 
every single flu shot, no matter who produces it, is against the same strains. With the COVID shots now, the pharmaceutical companies that were coming up with have tried different areas. And so they're, they're related, they're close, they give similar protection, but they're not identical. What about delivery systems for the vaccines? I know as we work on these uh, new vaccines that can tackle more and more strains, uh, there has been talk of creating a vaccine that's, uh, that you uh, put up your nose, that's a nasal uh, vaccine. Uh, would any new vaccines work in that way, or does it have to be something injected into the bloodstream? It doesn't have to be injected. There's many different routes that we can use for vaccines. Typically, shots are the easiest to give and manage. We had a a nasal flu vaccine that we used for a few years. It just never became really popular. It didn't compete very well with the the shots. Those were easier for places to manage and easier to give and what people expect as well. But then again, you don't have to get a shot. So we've tried it before. We have had success with that with flu. Uh, We'll see if that's what we do with COVID. I think people are used to getting shots. Even if they don't like them, at least it's something they understand and they don't see it as a a new vaccine and a new delivery uh, pathway that that they haven't seen before. So that can cause some concern. Yeah, there's a WAPO article running around on the nasal vaccine, and there's a a line in there that says, the thought is that maybe if you did it that way, it would be better at preventing even infections. Uh, Is that what we're trying to do now? People are are so worried about even infections instead of hospitalizations and deaths, which is always the worst case scenario. That's what we're really trying to prevent. But even infections now, people are like, give me the shot so I don't get that or give me the nose spray so I don't even get infected with this thing. Well, we would love to be able to prevent infections. We haven't been as successful in doing that as we have in preventing serious disease and hospitalizations. So it's it's one of those challenges where we have vaccines that aren't perfect. They don't prevent disease in all cases, but they prevent the worst of the disease, which is really a, a big benefit from something like that. We're talking about a vaccine that can keep you from being hospitalized or dying. You still might get sick, but it's going to prevent the worst. And uh, a lot of our focus has been on that because we don't have vaccines that can prevent infection. Was that a bit of a drawback in the messaging? I know uh, people, uh, non-scientists, you know, people like me, uh, hear the word vaccine and we think, ah, vaccine, I'm never going to get that. But that was never really the case. Uh, The vaccines will prevent you from getting seriously ill. They reduce your chances of going into the hospital and dying from this. And and I think when when we first started getting vaccines and we heard people getting breakthrough cases, and that was the big news for a while, did that kind of, did, did the lack of messaging hurt or is that just people just misunderstood what vaccines can do? I think people have this idea that as soon as you get a shot, you're protected from every possible thing related to that disease forever. And it's not like that. Even with vaccines, we get every year. The flu vaccine, uh, on average, is about 50 to 60 percent effective, even lower in older people. And so you can still get the flu after getting the flu shot. But most people chalk that up to, well, the vaccine I got is different than the strains that are circulating. But even if they're a good match, it'll still cause disease. But it is stopping hospitalizations and deaths. Early on, when we were using it for that, that initial variant that it was developed for. We were preventing disease and hospitalizations and death, but uh, it, it didn't last for a long time like that because we had these new variants where the vaccine didn't work against the, the uh, original infection. So it's kind of a challenge of getting people to understand what a vaccine is. I think a lot of people thought I'm going to get two shots and I'm never going to have to worry about COVID again. And unfortunately, that's not the case. Brian Labus, professor in UNLV's School of Public Health. We're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer in today for Charles Feldman. Law enforcement agencies across the country have been warning about the rise in ghost guns, the guns without serial numbers. You can make them from parts and uh, assemble them at home. Officials say they are showing up at more crime scenes. President Biden announced today some new rules regulating firearms, parts, and 
requiring dealers to stamp serial numbers on ghost guns. Chris Catherine is the police chief of Redlands and president of the California Police Chiefs Association. Thank you so much for joining us. Where do you come down on this situation? I know that uh, law enforcement has a big problem with ghost guns because they are untraceable, and that makes it so dangerous, and it makes it so much harder for law enforcement to catch the bad guys. Uh, how do you feel about the idea of stamping serial numbers on these parts? Well, thanks for having me, and I feel that uh, the serial numbers are really going to help. Um, you know, it doesn't prevent anything from happening, but the ability to trace guns back to their origin um, really helps us with investigations, and you know, the requirement to actually utilize the same rules we have for guns purchased anywhere else, I think is going to be very helpful in trying to keep uh, firearms out of the hands of prohibited persons, minors, etc. In terms of actually doing anything about violent crime, though, I mean, you used to just scratch the serial numbers off or you'd find a gun with a serial number in an investigation, but it was stolen or it was illegally obtained. So the criminals are going to find a way because they always have. <laughs> That's correct. I mean, this is just a, a tool in the toolbox, right? There, There is no easy uh, wave the magic wand and solve gun violence in our country. That's for sure. Um, but the, the little things do help. Um, you know, in the current situation, uh, like I said, minors and prohibited persons can go online and purchase all the components they need to assemble a gun for people who otherwise have been deemed not allowed to have one. It just makes it a little more difficult for that situation to occur, obviously not impossible. You know, we realize there's still going to be a black market for firearms. There always has been. I think there always will be. Um, but trying to put some curbs on that may help keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people on occasion. And you think it's possible that uh, somebody thinking, I'm going to get a ghost gun so I can commit this shooting or whatever and not get caught. And yeah, there are ways around that. And criminals will always find a way if they really want to do something. But then it goes back to the old argument of, but why make it easy for them? Why not just make it more difficult? Because if a burglar really wants to get into your house, a locked door is not going to stop them. But at the same time, you lock your door. Because you don't want to issue an open invitation. Will will these changes to these ghost gun situations, do you think it might stop a, a few here and there, or do criminals just not care? Well, I think your analogy is perfect, because exactly like we tell people, um, you know, the more you do to make it difficult, the least likely you are going to be a victim. And with ghost guns, it's the same sort of thing. So the more barriers, are, the barriers you put in the way of people who otherwise should not be allowed to have firearms, do and are refusing to go through the, the normal process, I think it, it may delay enough um, some people and prevent some crimes. Um, as you stated, you know, people who want to go commit gun violence or crimes in general, uh, they're pretty highly motivated sometimes. And where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, but like you said, it, it's not about, it, it's really just about making it um, a little more difficult rather than being so easy and us just throwing our hands up and saying there's nothing we can do. We say they've been showing up in more crime scenes. We've seen some headlines. You know, there's an epidemic of ghost guns out there. Lawmakers in this state have been scrambling to put rules to govern the sales on them. Give us a sense of what the departments are seeing out there when it comes to these. Well, I mean, ghost guns have really kind of changed the landscape. So we're finding firearms um, not necessarily used at crime scenes, but in traffic stops and all kinds of situations more often now than ever and by a large margin. And you've seen in the news and other reports um, that the percentage of firearms that are considered ghost guns found at crime scenes or related to actual shooting crimes is really going up at quite a pace. So, And I would expect that to continue without any of these curbs. So I think these curbs might help um, bring that back down because, you know, there's a lot of firearms out there as it is. 
Um, our ability to trace them through the serialized components is important. And I think, uh, you know, these measures, if nothing else, just kind of closes that loophole so that uh, everybody's on the same playing field. If you're going to buy a gun in the store, you're going to be subject to the same requirements if you're trying to buy it online and in parts. What other restrictions would you as a law enforcement officer want to see placed, not just on ghost guns, but on guns in general that you think would really help? Well, I mean, definitely it's not for me to to make the law. I mean, we're here to enforce the laws that are deemed appropriate by um, our lawmakers. Um, So we worry less about that. But in the past, California Police Chiefs has supported legislation in 2019 that did pass. And what that did um, is it made firearm pre-circuit precursor parts, um, something that were regulated also. That was AB 879. And those kinds of laws are things that um, a, lot of, a lot of chiefs, a lot of people in the law enforcement community feel are reasonable, um, like I said, just to subject these components to some regulation. Um, as we stated, where there's a will, there's a way. And if somebody uh, badly enough wants to get a hold of a firearm, they can. But having some of these reasonable curbs on their ability to get it, especially, like I said, for minors and prohibited persons, I think is important for overall public safety. Chris Catron, police chief in Redlands and a president, California Police Chiefs Association. Chief, thanks. If you have a dog, you might not think uh, much about the process of feeding that dog. You grab the bowl, you put the food in, you set the bowl down, and then you repeat the next feeding time. Yeah, seems simple. But if you're not doing this right, you could be spreading germs. There's a new study on this. The co-author is Dr. Emily Luisana, small animal veterinary nutritionist, member of the advisory board for Tailored, a pet nutrition dog food company. Doctor, thanks for being here. So I don't speak for everybody, but I feel like most people, the dog mostly cleans the plate because it's a dog. And then they kind of just wash it in the sink, swirl the water around and uh, throw it back on the floor. That is not the way to do things. (laughs) <laughs> well, you're not alone. There's certainly a good number of pet owners that do exactly as you said. Uh, but no, it's not the ideal to wash a pet bowl. Uh, so what is the best way to wash the pet bowl? And are you doing it for the dog or are you doing it to protect yourself as well? Yeah, so both. Um, both. I think most what our study shows is most pet owners are unaware that there are recommendations uh, by the FDA, by pet food manufacturers, um, not just regarding your pet food uh, bowl, but also how we handle our dog food in general. Uh, ideally, following these FDA recommendations where you wash the bowl every single time after using it will reduce bacterial contamination, uh, not just for your pet, but also for yourself. Wash with like dish soap, like give it a good scrub. Yeah, so hot water and dish soap, um, hot water being over 160 degrees Fahrenheit or putting it through the dishwasher. Uh, Most of our dishwashers in our households are NSF certified, uh, meaning that they do dramatically reduce bacterial loads. And does this count for cats as well? No, we didn't focus on cats in this study, um, but I think we could certainly extrapolate out to cats and even more so because cats tend to be grazers during the day. You know, our pets, like you said, they often will eat their meal, um, be done with it, or or we'll pick it back up. Uh, But cats uh, from our studies have shown that they tend to eat a little bit here, a little bit there. And so leaving that food out, especially wet food that doesn't have preservatives in it, can really increase bacterial contamination over time. So it might be even more important for cats to keep their dishes really clean and make sure we're putting the food up uh, in between their eating times. What kind of germs and bugs are we talking about for us and, and for them, since it's both? 
Yeah, so uh, best case scenario, we're talking about non-pathogenic bacteria. Uh, worst case scenario, we're talking about things like E. coli and salmonella, you know, certain bacteria and pathogens that we go out of our way to avoid in pet food and in human food. Um, and if those bacteria are zoonotic, you know, our pets can get sick and we can get sick from that. All right. So let's say I follow all these FDA guidelines and I clean the bowl in the recommended way and make sure it's spotless. There's no bacteria. I wash my hands, you know, and I, when I take care of the dog's food, I keep the food stored in the proper place, proper location, proper temperature. And I do everything right and I eliminate right all bacteria. And then after the dog eats, I let the dog lick my face and my mouth. <laughs> so what do I do? What do I do about that? Well, you'll get an A-plus from the FDA from the first part, um, but certainly any type of contamination from their mouth, you know, from their paws, um, other body parts is certainly something we're concerned about in the veterinary community. Ideally, we always wash our hands with soap and water after playing with our pets, but especially when we're talking about their mouths. Um, I don't know if your dogs are like mine, but their mouths go all over the place in the yard. Uh, this is certainly something we need to keep in mind in our, in our daily life. Wasn't there another one of those studies? There's been a few. This was the other week about don't let your dog lick you on the face, but everybody lets them. <laughs> it's true. I don't think they got that memo. <laughs> And you can you can clean the uh, uh, dish and uh, do everything right, but the, but as any dog owner would tell you, the dog also drinks sometimes out of the toilet bowl too. So, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of like you 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 kind of fight the battles where you can. Exactly, exactly. We found, you know, looking through all these FDA recommendations, it's a long list and it can be a little overwhelming. And after we asked a lot of our pet owners to try these recommendations, we found that less than 8% of them were willing to do them long term, uh, which is not surprising when you look at the list. Uh, but I think you're exactly right. I think we need to tackle what we can, when we can, and focus on the, the steps that are sustainable for our households and that will have the biggest impact. Uh, so a lot of times that will be washing the bowl regularly, having a routine that makes sense for you, you know, washing your hands before and after handling the pet food. Um, and, you know, a few, a few special tips I'll throw in there is having, you know, more than one pet bowl uh, that can make compliance a little bit easier when you don't have just that one pet bowl you need to wash. Um, and then also one thing we found people were very surprised about were, was that, the, re the manufacturers recommend you store the kibble um, in their own bag and not kind of dumping that into another container, which is a really common practice. But that's a way you can transmit bacteria from maybe your hands to the food, you know, to the next batch of food and to your pets. Right. I was going to ask you, is this is this a kibble conversation or is this like fancy people who make like raw dog food diets and mix in all sorts of stuff? <laughs> well, it's both. It's both. We certainly have seen recalls with all kinds of food due to contamination, but the risk goes up with raw foods or any type of food that doesn't have preservatives in it, like fresh food or canned food. Um, anything you make in the kitchen that you might, you know, kind of make it on the counter that you've prepared your pet food and now you go around and make a salad on that same counter, you know, any type of behavior like that increases risk. And again, we can't control everything and our study doesn't necessarily suggest we should try to eliminate all sources of bacteria or contamination, uh, but we should zoom in on the, the steps that make the biggest difference in the long run. Yeah, do your best, people. Dr. Emily Luisana, small animal veterinary nutritionist and on the advisory board for Tailored's, a pet's nutrition dog food company. Doctor, thanks. Uh, that's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.